Happy holidays to everyone except the Reagan family. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And may, may Ronald burn. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Carmen and Christina, and this is Historias Unknown, a podcast where we talk about Latin American history. Sometimes it's horrible um, and deals with heavy topics like racism, corruption, <laughs> genocide. I don't know why I laughed. <laughs> because it's like that, not the yeah, awkward but like the... Yeah. It's like a specific type of laugh. Yeah, yeah we know. Yeah, but more than that, we also <laughs> talk about resistance or stories of resistance power and community so there's always upsides <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good way to put it i love that you did that <laughs> um yeah and uh, today is going to be a very heavy episode i will warn everyone right now this topic will talk about a massacre that happened in el salvador and rape there was a rape involved it happens during the civil war so there's you know this is this was a massacre i would go as far to say that it was an attempt at genocide possibly because like these are indigenous people that were in these areas and yeah and the rape so if this that's something that is hard to hear then um it's okay to skip this episode um and if you're gonna listen just uh yeah be ready for these horrible topics because at the time of recording, it's the 14th. And on the 11th of December, is it, it's the 41st anniversary of the El Mosote Massacre. So that's what, that's what we're going to be talking about today. For those of you, because there's a lot of people that don't know about El Mosote, I think you have to be Salvadoran. And on top of that, you'll have to be looking for... I was going to say, you have to be Salvadorian. Yes. And you have to be looking for the information because it is something that has been hidden it has been tried the attempt to hide it has been is it's been purposely being done yeah yes and changing the story of how it happened also some people don't even believe it happened oh my god it's like the holocaust deniers yeah it's exactly like that so before talking about the el mozote massacre some context is necessary and if you've listened to my Spookytales podcast that we did last March we talked about historic women and in one of those episodes we talked about Rufina Maya and Rufina Maya is a survivor of the of fuck I was going to say the holocaust I'm sorry it's a survivor of El Mosote and we tell her story specifically in that episode today I'm going to be sharing more so- stories from other survivors but I'm also going to start out this episode with some context. And it is the same context that was in that original episode. But I think a reminder is good for everyone because not everyone remembers or knows about this. The Salvadoran Civil War lasted 12 years from 1980 to 1992. And by the end of it, nearly 75,000 Salvadorans had lost their lives. A lot of people went missing. Even if you've, if you've listened to our coffee episode... The history of the Salvadoran Civil War goes way before that. So after World War II, two superpowers emerged, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. um, And uh, they obviously would not go to war with each other because, you know, nuclear war and mutual destruction. Instead, they waged proxy wars. The United States feared that Soviet expansion into they they feared the, you know, communism, the expansion of communism. And um, it, it had already gotten to Eastern Europe. And so the, and they didn't want it to get all over the world. And President Truman announced that the 
the United States was going to contain the spread of communism. They were going to be the police of the world or whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm. And this is a tr- this is the Truman Doctrine, for those that don't remember. And so the United States financially and in some occasions directly aided wars in Latin America to prevent, quote unquote, prevent communism. Mm-hmm. So I think we all know by now, if you've been listening to this episode, that the United States has... Uh, meddled in latin america for a very long time now time and time again yeah with interests uh, with capitalist interests and interests to prevent communism is the whole reasons and so sometimes presidents have been democratically elected and they will overthrow <laughs> these democratic elections mm-hmm. because these people don't favor the united in States. favor of dictatorships yeah yes yeah so that's, you know, that's why the United States was involved in Latin America. Um, and so if we go back to El Salvador now, uh, before the official start of the Civil War, tension between campesinos, um, rural people, people in the rural areas, right, um, and the oligarchs had been rising. One of the worst incur- occurrences of these tensions uh, happened in 1932 when the general Maximilian, Maximiliano, yeah, mm-hmm. I wrote Maximiliano, but that's mm, that can't that's be wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so General Maximiliano Hernandez carried out an operation that is known as La Matanza, the slaughter, if you translate that into English. And this was the killing of 30,000 coffee farmers, mostly indigenous people, people of El Salvador. And they, they were protesting terrible work conditions. And we talk about this in the coffee episode. So it, our first episode. And... These killings occurred in the span of a week. Uh, They went on to ban indigenous languages, traditions, clothing. Then this led to, this just widened the economic gap, leaving indigenous uh, people and people that were in rural areas growing more poor while the oligarchs grew more rich. And we have mentioned them a bunch of times, but the Mm -hmm. 12 families are the oligarchs. I thought it was 14. Sorry, 14. Obviously, I am... Out of it? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very out of it. By the 1970s, there was a middle class emerging, but the uh, upper class was, you know, still at a super advantage, right? And so there there was a resistance growing. Different groups of armed resistance were forming and coffee farmers, basically farmers, were uh, joining, you know, uh, these groups becoming or be, and this is what would become the guerrilla. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were smaller uh, guerrilla warfare tactics going on, but it wasn't to the point of the civil war yet. And protests were also increasing. By the 1980s, the different armed resistance groups became one group. This was called the Frente Farabundo Marti para Liberación Nacional, or uh, now, you know, just shortened to FMLN. Mm -hmm. Uh, This group was named after one of the leaders uh, that were killed during La Matanza. So one of the leaders that that led that revolt was uh, Farabundo Marti, and he was killed. And we covered that in the coffee episode. So under President Carter, an effort to address human rights abuses and inequality began in El Salvador. But once President Reagan took over, it went from addressing human rights to just flat out stopping communism. Um, so that's what he called it. Under It was under the guise or whatever. Under Reagan, yeah. I mean. Mm-hmm. 
both economic and military aid were provided to the Salvadoran government, while the FMLN was receiving aid from Nicaragua and Cuba, who was receiving their aid from the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. The FMLN did not receive anywhere near the amount of aid that the Salvadoran army did. So it was a lot of money. Up to $4 billion was given to the Salvadoran government. Sorry, military. Same thing. Yeah. 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 During the height of the war. And it got to the point where it was like one to two million a day that was being given for military aid. There was a lot of human rights violations during the Civil War. And it was written or told that or said, you know, that the FMLN was doing, was the one committing these human Mm, rights violations. mm -hmm. After the war and after all that, there was a report or not a study, but investigation. Mm -hmm, That's the mm -hmm. word I was looking for. Done. So um, a separate report done by the United Nations found that over the 90% of the human rights violations committed during the Civil War was all done by right-wing military forces trained and aided by by the the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. What a surprise. Right. And even to this day, most people, if they were not in these rural villages, if they were not in these left-leaning areas or the, the, the people that were near the guerrillas, if anyone was away from that, they will repeat this narrative Yeah, that both sides were doing wrong. Oh, both sides did it. But both it's not the reality. Wrong. It's just what's been... Uh how history has been rewritten. Yeah, it's what the Salvadoran government was saying and it's what the United States government was saying. Mm-hmm. And to this day, we'll still say, but the report is out there. You could mm-hmm. you could find it. And it, I mean, the UN acted as a... Like a neutral party or what? Like a neutral- Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when they did the report. So. so the United States covertly aided, covertly aided a coup in 1979. Some historians now believe this coup was done on a, the on the Salvadorans army own their own accord. It wasn't the United States who, you know, were, was doing it. I don't know which one is right, but there was a coup and this was the official start of the civil war. Though before this, there were smaller revolts happening. Mm-hmm. So the moderate Democratic Party that took over was too liberal for the right wing group called Arena, who still I think they're still a thing to this day in, the, in El Salvador. Yeah, they are. So after the Civil War, two parties emerged from that, right? And it was Arena and it was Arena. And actually, that's something I'm going to talk about in the next episode, which is going to be about Bukele. Um, he's basically the third party. It's actually really good that you are. Yeah, yeah. That you're is. doing that right this now. Is good context leads into. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's the leader of Arena now. No, no, no. So okay, no. he started off with FMLN. And then he got kicked out of that. Um, yeah. And then he tried to go conservative to run um, for president. I don't remember if he did end up running with Arena or not, but no, no, he didn't. He basically created his own party, New Ideas. Okay, that's what I thought, but I don't know too much about him. Yeah, so that's like the third party now. Okay. And the majority because of him as well in the government stuff. Yeah, gross. Mm-hmm. He sucks. Anyway. Yeah. So... Yes, the group Arena, the new uh, Democratic Party was too liberal for them. They were not liberal at all. <laughs> Let me just <laughs> state that right now. And so the the Arena, they began ruthless tactics to get rid of the opposition. These tactics included killing activists and church leaders. 
And it's worth noting that during this time, there was a huge movement in liberation theology going on. So the liberation theology in the most basic of, you know, definitions is the church helping the most vulnerable and and they took a stand against the oligarchs. And, you know, in most places, that's not a thing that was being done, even though technically, like, that's what Jesus was aiming for, right? Uh, yeah. But most churches... Historically, mm-hmm. Catholicism, were it was like, they were rich and... Yeah. Yeah. Were, so in El Salvador, they were doing the opposite and they were actually doing the right thing. The poor. Yes. Yeah. They really asked themselves, what would Jesus do? And they did. They that. did. <laughs> they did that. Yes. Archbishop Oscar Romero, he was canonized as a saint in 2018, but he published a letter, a public letter to President Jimmy Carter, urging him to cease military aid to El Salvador. In his letter, he said political power is in the hands of the armed forces. They know only how to repress the people and defend the interests of the Salvadoran oligarchy. And that U.S. support would only sharpen the injustice and repression against the organizations of the people, which repeatedly have been struggling to gain respect for their fundamental human rights. So this letter was public. He did it on the on February 1980, and he was assassinated and partly because of his beliefs, because of what he was doing, but also because of this letter. Mm -hmm. He was assassinated on March 24th, 1980. And actually... One of the captains responsible for this murder fled El Salvador to avoid trial. And he lived in Modesto, California for years. Which is where we lived. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where we went to high school. Yeah. Um, and he worked at as a, as a cars, car dealership person. Probably on Crow's Landing. <laughs> right? That's my guess. And, and he was there for years. And then he fled from the U.S. And he's hiding somewhere. Um, and I don't know, somewhere in the mountains. And he still hasn't taken blame for, or he still doesn't think he's responsible for the murder of. He hasn't taken accountability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he now lives in poverty, begging for his children's forgiveness, and they don't talk to him. So. Um, okay, sorry, that was a little offside, but I wanted to include it. <laughs> so by the end of the war, it is estimated that two dozen priests had been assassinated. And uh, the last six that were assassinated, that was in 1989. That case has been reopened, and I think the former president, Alfredo Cristiani, he was going to be brought to justice for this, and then he fled El Salvador in 2021. Mm, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and so atrocities by the right-winged group uh, grew throughout the war. They used tactics that the U.S. military taught them, specifically tactics called draining the sea or scorched earth tactics. And so what this means is that they would weaken the insurgency by going after civilians that supported the rebels. And and these uh, people were largely indigenous people, campesinos, farm workers in the countryside. So they were killing displacing civilians by the thousands. By 1981, the Al-Qatat Battalion, which is so ironic because that name is Anawa. Indigenous, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's an and um but here they are. I just it's just murdering what, indigenous if that is people not... with their own <laughs> language or whatever. With the like battalion the name. named yeah. after. Yeah. Yeah. That's if that is disgusting. not Latinidad, then I don't know what it is. 
right like uh what is it Ast- <laughs> astlan <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so this battalion was mobilized and in 1981 and they were to be a, r- a rapid response counterinsurgency battalion they were trained and organized by the US army in the school of americas in panama wow weird cuz i just did an episode about panama for spooky tales wow weird okay so graduates of this school of americas went on to commit some of the worst human rights violations like in existence and these are all us trained people what is that i don't know what is that doesn't tell you anything about the united states i don't know what i mean yeah so this battalion uh led scorched earth operations and one of the worst massacres um known as el mosote and this wasn't done just in el mosote this was in the el mosote is like the biggest pueblo in that area but there were pueblos leading up to mosote they did the same the same thing and they've all just kind of been lumped together but mm. la joya is one place and then there's a few others like about three other people that were just really nearby in mosote and they did the same thing um to these people so this is kind of where like the worst of it will be described mm. so <sighs> So on the evening of December 10th, 1981, a few soldiers entered the village of El Mosote and demanded that citizens hand over their weapons. When the villagers said they had no weapons, the soldiers killed a few people and left. In the early hours of December 11th, 1981, the Atlacat Battalion stormed and occupied the village. They ripped people from their beds. They burned houses and animals. They gathered all the townspeople separated the children the men and the women the men were all murdered first so the kids and women could watch they were all beheaded many of the women were then raped so the children could watch and then murdered soldiers laughed this is like uh, i mean all of it is disgusting and horrible children oh sorry soldiers laughed as they threw children in the air before stabbing them oh that is truly horrible and what kind of like the amount of dehumanization you have to have in order to do things like that like that is just it's unimaginable to me yeah i yeah for sure um over the course of three days it is estimated that a thousand people were killed the following is trial testimony from a few of the different trials that have happened about this so amadeo sanchez was eight years old when the massacre happened and he said he told um, he told the judge that he survived by fleeing into the corn and sisal fields with his father. He heard as girls and women were raped. He hid and they hid him and his father hid until the soldiers left. Once there was silence and they were sure that the soldiers were gone, they returned to their village. They found the bodies of his mother and his two siblings, as well as those of his aunts, uncles and cousins. In one adobe house, he testified that he saw the body of a woman who had been shot in the head. Next to her was a one-day-old baby boy. Oh, my God. The baby boy's throat had been cut. And he told the judge that on the wall, soldiers had written, Un niño muerto es un guerrillero menos. One dead child is one less guerrilla. 
soldier. That is just horrible. But that's what that's the shit they would say. Like, like I mean, that's how you know this shit. is genocide. Yeah. Like a, yeah. a guerrillero is an excuse or a, a code name for an indigenous person. You know what I mean? And it's like the same thing they would say um, here about indigenous people. And they did, they did the same thing in Vietnam. They did the mm-hmm. same. These are tactics learned. I mean, that's how you know they were U.S. trained. Yeah. So, Genaro Sanchez was 49 on December 11th, 1981. At the time, he was living in the village of La Joya in the municip- municipality of Man- Manguera, Morazan. And Morazan is the department that El Mozote is in. So, departments, I think they're like states. Really? Well, because everywhere else they have departamentos. They don't have like, I don't know. Sit, I don't know. How, I don't know what it is. A county? Maybe it's a county. I thought it was like a county. This this confuses me on every podcast that I have yeah, to talk yeah, yeah. about departments. I don't know what they are. Anyway, this was in the Morosan department. And this is where El Mozote is at too, is where I was getting at. Hmm. It's it like a, a municipal county. when they say that, no? Or is it different still? Mani- the municipality is Manguera. Oh. La Joya was del pueblo. Manguera Morazan. Like the whole thing is La Joya, oh. Manguera Morazan, El Salvador. I see, I see. Well, maybe it is like a state then. Okay. That was my, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, that's where his home is. And he still lives there um, at the time that he gave this testimony. So he told the judge the following. He saw helicopters landing in Arada Vieja. And he saw soldiers shooting in the village of La Joya. He escaped with his life partner and four children. They just hid in a bush. On the night of December 11th, 1981, um, Sotero Guevara and Patricio Diaz, uh, neighbors from nearby, told uh, came to his house crying because their family had just been killed. The grieving couple... And the Sanchez family went together to Las Marias River in La Jolla. And then a week later, they uh, Sanchez, the one doing the testimony, Genaro Sanchez, went to the Sotero, the Sotero home and they found it in ruins along with the bodies of Catalina Chicas, Petronila Chicas, Justa Guevara, Jacinta Guevara, Roque Guevara, who... Genaro calls his son, oh Ambrosio Guevara, Lorenzo Vigil, Aminta Vigil, Pedro Vigil. I mean, and entire he, families, entire generations. I mean, an entire fucking town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was in La Jolla. He says that they had to throw five women, two girls and two boys into a hole to bury them. Uh, they were There were nine of them. Jacinta uh, Guevara was nine months pregnant. Oh. And he says that he, this is his, his testimony. I touched one of the bodies that to put it in the hole and the flesh came off. And then they were, they were just helping dig graves for the wounded or the dead, I mean. And they found further down from this house, they found 16 more dead. Their families buried them. Just things, things like that. Um, yeah. Let's see. If you recall the names, there was people with the last name Chicas. So Mm -hmm. Lydia Chicas, she was part of that family. So she gave testimony as well. And also one more thing. So when the first trial happened in the 90s, 
and that's the trial that Rufina Amaya also testified mm-hmm. in. And their testimony that I'm about to, that I already shared one and I'm about to read mm-hmm. the next one next. They wouldn't even, the courts wouldn't even acknowledge them as victims or survivors. So what they have been become known as is the party, uh, they have been called the offended. So when you look at documents, it says the offended versus the government or the military. It doesn't say the victims, it's the offended. Disgusting, but all all of that to not take accountability, you know? So when they, they have to say, they have to test, they have to testify or state how they were offended. That's how they have to, mm. it's addressed in court. So Lydia Chicas, and this is her testimony. On December 13th, 1981, at six in the morning in the village of Bosa Onda in Manguera, she says, I saw a great number of men in green uniforms armed with rifles and machetes. About eight in the morning, they began to kill people who lived there. I heard the people shouting and the sound of blows like like cutting a banana tree while I was hiding in some bushes. I saw when they killed Sinforoso Reyes with their machetes and his wife Eugenia Diaz, who was pregnant, and therefore children who were minors. The children were talking to their father and mother. They said, Mommy, get up. But how could they get up? They were already dead. Her parents, Pablo Chicas, Florentina Meja, Mejia, sorry, they were killed in the massacre. Her brother Omar, Omar was slashed in the face. His fingers were mutilated. Her sister Agustina was on a rock. They, she found, sorry, she found her sister Agustina on a rock with her skirt lifted. Oh her my pants God. Uh, down, uh, dead. Her three younger siblings, her grandmother, her three uncles, her aunts, her cousins. In total, 55 of her relatives were killed in this massacre. How many? 55. Oh my God. That's like her whole family. Whole family. And that's the thing about these communities. And back then, people still lived in these large amounts. Um, so yeah, entire families. Like, li- like the whole, f- not even just like, because people think family, they think immediate family. No, but, this, but like the this whole was everyone. extended, like everyone. entire family. Yeah. Yes. So if the, uh, this is in the in the article that I, I got this from, it was from the trial. But um, so the person that and these are all, basically these are all sort of El Faro. Um, and the sources are going to be linked, but a lot mm. of this is from El Faro. So um, the reporter that wrote this up said. She said 55. I asked another reporter covering the hearing. Yes, she said 55. If a thousand people died in El Mosote massacre, 5% were Lydia's relatives. And the silence in the courtroom was apparently unbearable, which, uh, I mean, like just reading this is. I mean, how do you. And I I know she did because, you know, she's testifying and stuff. But I'm like, how do you go on like that? Like, how do you. Right. On top of like the trauma, the grief. Yeah. The survivor's guilt. All of it. So I also found for the first time in 2020, they were able to find two soldiers that testified in from the battalion. Um, and so their identities were kept hidden. They were known as Juan and They Sol. do not deserve that, honestly. They don't deserve that, but they were given that. Uh, and I think it's just so that they can have them alive to actually do the trial because they would mm. they would be killed that makes sense i i 100 believe they would be killed by the government in order not to, to hide, hide this shit. more yeah you're yeah. right 
So, and I have, I found one of their testimonies. So this was in a November 2020, 2020, sorry, November 2020 trial. Um, two of the soldiers in the battalion testified. And their testimony solidifies what survivors of the massacre have been saying for decades because a lot of people are, were trying to like deny, have tried to deny and silence the survivors for decades. Mm -hmm. But the testimony of this soldier really solidifies what they've been saying too. So this is from the one that they call Juan. You're going to ask me about the massacre at El Mosote Morazan in December 1981, said Juan. And his voice was changed. He was hidden behind a wooden divider. Only the prosecutors and the judges know their true identities. Wow. So he says, it was the beginning of December. A few days before, I was at the Al Atlacat Battalion headquarters in Opico, La Libertad. I joined on March 1st, 1981. I was there because I earned a little more where I was before in the 2nd Infantry Brigade. Brigade sorry, can't talk. I was in the second of six companies, each with 160 men. The commander of the Atlacat Battalion was Colonel Monterosa, and second in command was Natividad de Jesus Casares. Captain Mauricio Isaac Duke Lozano gathered us. He was a skinny, tall, white, curly-haired man. They told us to load up into the trucks. I put on my rucksack and climbed into one of the eight trucks. We came here to San Francisco Gotera. The company got out to go to the store and eat something. The leaders entered the barracks. Among those who entered, I remember Perez Reyes and Alvaro, Alvaro Guevara. They were there for about 45, 45 minutes. When they came out, they ordered me back into the truck. I put on my pack and we traveled to Perkin, where we slept in the hillside. At nine the next morning, they lined us up. I mean, all this is like... But, but how they got there. Okay. Well, it's, it's about to get there, so I might as well just read it. And <laughs> like, I got this far. Yeah, yeah. So at nine the next morning, they lined us up. Sergeant Julio Cesar Vasquez Martinez and Sergeant Martinez Martinez were there. We began marching. We didn't know where we were going or why. We were traveling on foot down paths that led to El Mosote. We arrived between 11 in the morning and 12. The soldiers started forming groups while I stayed behind with the rucksacks. Aside from the groups, the rest of the unit was assigned to the perimeter watching the terrain, which was both flat and hilly. Lieutenant Alvaro, Alvaro Guevara ordered them to form groups because they were going to kill people. He received orders from Monterosa, who received orders from general staff. A soldier, a corporal, or officer can't make such a decision alone. Alvaro Guevara ordered them to pull the people out of the hallways and patios of the houses. They ordered the group, the other groups to start killing them. I saw Corporal Martinez Callejas, Corporal Remberto Reyes Lopez, and Saul Moreno Gr Granada shooting. I was about 50 yards away looking after the equipment. We were carrying ammunition, clothes, food for three days in our rucksacks. But careless eaters would finish it all in one day. We carried an M16. The uniform was olive green with the Atlacat patch on one other and one other heavenly detail. It came with the helmet of fiber and steel. I saw the people, children from ages two of six, women and men dressed humbly. The soldiers of Atlacat shot them dead. After killing them, they left them there and we regrouped. They began to burn down the houses. I didn't report this before because if I did, they would kill me. I also didn't have the opportunity. I'm poor and I work constantly. 
I told them what they were doing to the children was an injustice, but I couldn't stop it because I wasn't their boss. I was in an Elmosote for two days and two nights. After we traveled for about three hours along the path to San Fernando Gotera, that's where the trucks arrived. And this goes along with the testimony that villagers have always said. The attacks lasted two days. Mm -hmm. They marched and as they marched, they stopped in other villages. And there's one girl, well, she was a girl at the time, Lidia. Mm -hmm. She saw them get into the buses. He says that's where the trucks yeah. are, not buses, trucks. Mm -hmm. She saw that happen and he said trucks are. To corroborate her story, which yes, of course, exactly. I mean, people believe, but the deniers needed like proof, I guess. Yeah. And the information about the battalions is, is what has always been known as well that there were six companies of a mm. hundred and like whatever number he said mm -hmm. just like it does further prove that it corroborates this battalion further, existed yeah. yeah i'm just like sorry i just i want to believe uh -huh. him that he said it was wrong and maybe i mean of course one soldier who believes all of this is wrong doesn't have the power to act on any of it and um and Rufia, Rufina Maya's testimony, she heard a soldier say this oh, I is think wrong I and he was killed. Saying that in the in your Spooky Tales episode about her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do have her testimony here. Um, should I say it again, even though I've shared it in that episode? I think it's worth repeating. All right. Well, we will then, of course, share her testimony again. It is a little long and very hard to listen to. So warning again, because this is actually worse than. It's just a lot more detailed because I found a video of her sharing her testimony and I translated it word for word. So it's yeah. just very detailed. And the reason yeah. I say it's worth sharing is not to talk about the horrible things that happened, but because this is her testimony, right? And she like survived all of yes. this and was strong enough to share it again and again and again. Yeah. And so that's why I say it's worth And she's repeating. no longer here with us. That's right. So someone has to keep sharing it. Yeah. It's important to hear. So as we both... <laughs> Sorry, we both we... took a deep breath at the same time. <laughs> we did. No, you're right. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So Rufina Maya was uh, at the end of the line of women when they were separated into groups of men and women once the soldiers had arrived at El Mosote. She was at the end of the line of women because she fought and fought when they ripped her children from her arms. Um, that's why she was at the end. And because she was at the end, she managed to escape. When a woman in front of her in line was fighting against the guards and they all kind of went towards that woman, she went down on her knees and crawled away And while they were all busy. And that's how she crawled away and hid. She crawled towards the pine and crabapple trees. She pulled two branches down and she held onto those branches from 5 p.m. until 1 a.m. to continue hiding herself. And she stayed there, uh, crawled and hiding that long. She heard as they killed uh, men, women. She also saw them preparing to leave when one soldier said, Faltan los cabrones, meaning... There were still children. One soldier opposed, saying they could just take them with them as prisoners. 
But the person said if they let the the person in charge said if they let the children live, they would become future guerrilleros. So Rufina Amaya heard them as they murdered the children. Uh, she heard the children scream and cry. She heard them. Sorry, this is just hard. It's hard to read. <laughs> yeah. So she heard them cry uh, out for their mothers. But of course, the mothers were all dead already. And so were their their dads, right? She fought the urge to leave her own hiding spot because she heard her own children. She knew her own children were among the kids. And she stayed put. Uh, and she cried and begged to La Virgen de Guadalupe for forgiveness. She knew that if she moved, she would be killed too. And um, she knew then that her purpose was to share this atrocity with the world. There were soldiers everywhere, and she wasn't sure how she was going to escape. And I didn't include this in the notes, but she did hear her own children screaming out for her. Like It's just so just, horrible. It is. <laughs> and and like, I didn't and imagine she couldn't do anything, because obviously she knew she wouldn't survive if she, you know, yes. acted upon it, which is why you said she fought the urge. But I'm like the the strength, you know, to do that. I and, can't. And if because if she had, you know, the not, world might not even know about this. Yeah, this exactly. Day. And that's what I'm saying. Like she knew that she needed to because survive to tell this story. She was the first uh, survivor to tell her testimony. The first one. So she did hear her own children calling her name. Um, but I just didn't write that part down because I would not have been able to read it. But she did hear that. Um, so uh, there were soldiers everywhere. She didn't know how she was going to escape. Um, but a herd of cows and a group of dogs were passing by. And she crawled between them. She crawled for a good while among the animals. And then she dug a hole with her bare hands. And she hid there. That's where she started to cry for the first time that all, or more from since, since this happened. And she said that she felt like she wanted to die. She cried and begged and prayed for help to keep going. And eventually she did. She continued to crawl. She even crawled past the sleeping soldier. By the time she was spotted, she was too far. Though they did try to fire at her. They attempted to find her, but by some miracle, they failed. And in her video, it's I, I will link it in the show notes, but in her video where she's telling the story, she's in El Mosote where all this happened. And she's walking the path that she walked to hide. And she's walking along and she's like, aquí es donde me escondí. Bajé por aquí. Like, I went down this path. I hid right here. This is where I dug the hole. Like, she's pointing all this out. If you know Spanish, it is 100% worth watching the video. Um, Though, again, it is very hard to watch. But it is her telling her own story. And she's in the place that happened. She's showing the, the tree she hid at. Like, everything. It's, yeah, it's, it's a lot. By some miracle, she says, uh, they failed to find her. She could hear the soldiers looking for her. One of them said, Aquí no hay nada. Son los muertos que nos espantan. There's no one here. It's the dead trying to scare us. She hid among the maguey plants until the next day. Then she traveled through the maguey field until she reached a river. She walked along that river for a long time until she found a little house. That's where she stayed for six days. She estimate, estimates that 10 days passed since she escaped El Mosote. She was cold, hungry, and thirsty, and she prayed to God to find other people. 
After she left the house, a little girl and her mom found Rufina. They took her in, cleaned her, and they went looking for Rufina's oldest daughter, who no longer lived in El Mosote when the massacre occurred. Guerrilleros came across Rufina. They had seen the remains of what the army had done, but they were not aware of survivors until they found Rufina. She told them what they saw, and they broadcasted a mass on the night of the 31st. And they, this is where they said, in memory of the 1,000 massacred citizens. Before that, nobody knew. So this is the first time she t- has shared her testimony with the people who did Venceremos. Mm-hmm. Or is it Vencemos? Mm-hmm. I can't remember right Ooh, now. I didn't write it down. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Venceremos, the radio. Um, if, you've, if you've seen the movie Voces Inocentes, Venceremos or Vencemos Radio... It comes up a lot. I just don't remember right now. I'm drawing a blank, but it's one of those two. But they are the first ones to have brought it to their public, to their audience. Then President Duarte got on the air, denied the accusations himself, writing it off as guerrilla propaganda. At the time, it was true that guerrilla did not have the exact amount of the people. And they they said 1,000, but there was never, not an official count at Mm. the time. After that, Rufina was reunited with her oldest daughter and she took her in uh, to, and helped her start eating again. Rufina was distraught. Uh, I mean, she had just, she lost four children at El Mosote. Her eldest daughter was pregnant and she would tell her like, mom, please, you have to eat. We only have each other left. And if you won't, if you don't eat, I won't eat and your grandbaby will die. Not the way I'm saying it, but. But yeah. But Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I believe it. That's a, a lot of us frame things like that. And, you know, so Rufina did begin to eat because of that. And she re- regained her strength little by little. When she talks about it now, she doesn't tear up retelling the story until she talks about her children. Obviously, you know, but the hardest part for her is talking about her own children. So they were nine, five and three and eight months old. Oh my God. Their names were... Yeah, I know. When I first read this, um, Sammy was around eight months old. And that was like crying like a little baby uh, yeah. reading this, <laughs> especially this next part. <laughs> so their names were Cristino, Maria, Dolor- Maria Dolores, Maria Lilian, and Maria Isabel. Again, a, a very common thing back then was to um, name your babies. <laughs> Sorry. We have you know, our own aunts, our own tias, or basically all Maria's. <laughs> Yeah, our own mothers. So it was very common to have the first name be Maria and then to always call the baby the middle name. Yeah. So our own mother, she he, her first name is Maria. And she doesn't go by Maria. And <laughs> a lot of our other tias, it's the same thing. So before people are like, why is there three Marias? That's it's because why. <laughs> to her, they were, they were probably Dolores, Lilian, and Isabel. Yeah. On top of the other nicknames, they probably had because... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So... She says that at the time she cried and she cried because she was still nursing her eight month old and her body didn't know that the baby was gone. And she continued to produce breast milk. And every time Rufina felt the milk, because I mean, you haven't breastfed yet, Carmen, or I don't know if you ever will, because a lot of people don't want to. And that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, so your body does continue to produce breast milk. Uh, and then, you know, if your baby's crying and you're like at work and you hear a crying baby, they, you're, you feel it mm-hmm. and it, it has a very weird feeling. And, it, and if you don't pump or nurse, it hurts. And 
it was painful for Rufina because then it was also a reminder that she was supposed to be feeding a baby. Yeah. Um, her baby was not supposed to be dead and her body didn't know. And, you know, after a while, Rufina no longer cried. She began to say, I'm going to get word out. I'm going to begin to tell what happened. So after a month, um, a month after the massacre, three journalists met with the guerrilleros and Ruf- and they they told the, them about Rufina. So Rufina spoke with them, told them everything. Six weeks after the killings, the Washington Post ran a front page story with the headline, Salvadoran peasants describe mass killings. Women tells ch- of children's death. That woman is Rufina mm-hmm. Maya. Followed by the New York, T- New York Times story headlined, Massacre of Hundreds Reported in Salvadoran Village. The official U.S. investigation concluded that it was not possible to prove or disprove excess violence against civilians by government troops. But it is certain that guerrilla forces established defense holds in the area and they did nothing to remove civilians in the path of battle nor is there evidence that civilians made an attempt to leave they found no evidence that the number of civilians was anywhere near the amount that had been circulating that's a bunch of bullshit yeah and that was said at the time and so that's just you know what was being reported by the united states at the time So Rufina Maya says, don't think this has been easy. It has been very hard. And yet there are people who deny this happened. It happened. I was there. I survived. Those who suffered know this is the truth. She said this in 1990 during the other trial, through the first trial that uh, the, the, oh, sorry, the other testimonies I read, those were during the same trial. Um, Her and another survivor, Pedro Chicas Romero. Chicas, you'll recognize Mm -hmm. that last name. So they were the ones who filed the first criminal complaint against the battalion, and Rufina Maya was the first to testify. Before filing the 1990 complaint, a month after the massacre, that's when Rufina met with the reporters and told them what happened. He, she didn't think about how she, she would become a target herself mm-hmm. after sharing what had happened. She said, why wouldn't I share the truth? It's what happened. The Salvadoran government denied it happening. So did the U.S. government. And Rufina, knowing that they were basically calling her a liar, she continued to tell the story again and again. She talked to journalists. She presented her testimony to the British Parliament, to the U.S. Congress, to organizations across Europe and Canada. She presented her testimony during a protest in front of the School of Americas, which had been moved Mm. to Fort Benning. They did eventually get this place shut down, Mm. by the way. And she went up against two whole governments to yeah. tell her truth. Even after journalists released her testimony, both governments insisted that any casualties were poorly armed rebels. Mm-hmm. The United States didn't want another My Lay, the Vietnam mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. in their history. So, of course, they were going to deny this. Um, and again, that was the mass murder of Vietnamese civilians by infantry units in the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. So that was actual U.S. Army. Um, so... They were going to do whatever they could to discredit Rufina Maya. Um, But Rufina, she continued to directly contradict the statements of the U.S. and the Salvadoran governments with her testimony. And her testimony was vital to the investigation that was led by the United Nations. And this was the the investigation that allowed the exhumations to Mm -hmm. occur. 
and the ex the bodies or the the exhumation that was done in 1992 and that would not have happened without rufina maya and once the the bodies were all exhumed then it the accounts rufina's accounts was officially confirmed mm -hmm. because there was children found among yeah. these people on the on the 25th anniversary of el mosote rufina maya said i'm not afraid maybe next december i won't be here but i ask that you never abandon the memory of our children of all the victims of el mosote that was on the 25th an anniversary at the time of recording the so we're recording on a Wednesday um, mm -hmm. for the 14th and the day before this episode is going to come out. So on the 11th that of, of 2022 of December, it's the 41st anniversary of El Mosote. Oh, and that was on the 25th anniversary. So it's been 20 something more years now. Mm hmm. Yeah. Rufina lived in Honduras for a while. Um, she would continue to testify when needed. If journalists, reporters, literally anyone, anyone the a random youtube channel has is the people who have her story up like she would just whoever asked her she would share her story again and again she never denied a visitor she became a lay minister for the catholic church when she was living here in that um in honduras i think or was she back in el salvador sorry i didn't i think in el salvador and she worked with other survivors of the civil war she passed away from a stroke on march 9 2007 in san salvador uh, she died before she could see any sort of justice for the loved ones she lost at El Mosote. The war ended with a treaty in 1992, mm -hmm. and this treaty included an amnesty for the military. And so this made it so no one could be tried for any of the atrocities atrocities that took place during the Civil War, and this includes El Mosote. Mm -hmm. uh, however, it was found... This treaty was found unconstitutional in 2016. So this is what made them pursue the people that committed war crimes during the Civil War because mm. they found they went the way they went after to go about this was to declare that treaty unconstitutional. And so Judge Jorge Guzman Urquilla reopened the case for El Mosote. In March 2017, he charged 18 high-ranking military officials for war crimes or crimes against humanity. And when the case was reopened in 2016, Rufina's youngest daughter, Maria Maritza Amaya, continued her mother's work, sharing testimony and advocating for the victims of El Mosote. But she noticed that she was being followed. And one mm. day, a man dressed in camouflage in a bus threatened her, her life. So she requested asylum in the United States and it was granted. So she's wow. no longer in El Salvador. This is new information that I found. But during a pretrial hearing in April 2020, it was revealed that a United States military advisor, Sergeant Major Allen Bruce Hazelwood, was in the Moras Morasan, sorry, Moras Morasan, sorry, mm -hmm. I can't talk today, uh, with Colonel Domingo Monterrosa. If you'll remember from the test soldier's testimony, this mm -hmm. was one of the leading... Uh, individuals of El Mosote, mm -hmm. uh, Colonel Domingo Monterrosa, the commander of the Atlacat Battalion. Uh, so this revelation was done by expert witness Terry Carl. And um, she she has done an insane amount of work 
And she's basically an expert on the Salvadoran Civil War. She has read every any document in existence of the Civil War. She has read it. Wow. And I think she's like an anthropologist or something like that. Sociologist. Mm, probably one of those. But she found in one of those documents, she found that this U.S. military advisor was present. So he was like on during, the scene. So he knew. Yes. So if the U.S continues to try to say they had nothing and no involvement this fool was there Mm -hmm. so they can stop denying their bullshit yeah he was there when the order was given so in 2020 the investigation of el mozote is still ongoing what's ongoing it's still ongoing now it hasn't gone anywhere because of bukele president nayib bukele was blocking the investigation, claiming the judge had no jurisdiction over the military, hiding mil- the request for military documentation, just not giving it up, say- saying this documentation didn't exist. He kept handing over documents that judges already had. And then in 2021, Bukele passed legislation that mm. would force the judge, uh, judges over 60 to retire. Mm-hmm. And this included Judge Guzman, who was uh, overseeing or conducting the investigation of El Mosote. Then the Supreme Court announced that Guzman could stay on, but then he said if all the other judges were fired, he would quit. But it looks like Bukele got what he wanted. He, yeah, he, he did. did get this to pass. Yeah. So it wasn't Guzman who decided to retire. Like, he fired all of them. So... Uh, let's see, December 2021, This did. that's when this happened. All the judges were mm-hmm. fired. The trial has to start over. In February 2022, 16 more bodies were exhumed in a mass grave, and mm-hmm. they were found to be victims of El Mosote. So as of right now, the trial has not moved forward. Mm-hmm. And they're like basically deny, trying to deny it, it happened still. Or saying things like, we we can't live in the past. We can't. It's more painful to bring up the past. It's bullshit. And p- yeah, people yeah. deserve justice because it's not completely in the past. First of all, we should never forget the past. No, <laughs> that's like, you know, when we talk about slavery here and people are like, it's in the past. But that's even further back <laughs> than this. You know, so that's just a bunch of bullshit because the government doesn't want to take accountability and they want to continue with their like authoritarian um, techniques and stuff. And they want to continue with their anti-indigeneity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And I just want to end this with um, this is called the poem of the offended. It was written by. Oh, my God. Did I write down his name? What is my problem? Jesus. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Roque Dalton. Roque Dalton? Dalton? I don't know. He's a Salvadoran poet, though. (laughs) Very well-known poet that I don't... I don't know. (laughs) So, um, he says... Or this is the poem. Part of the poem in English. The hour of my turn has come. The turn of the offended silence for years. Despite the screams, hush, hush, listen. And I did write it in Spanish as well, or not write it, but copy and pasted it in Spanish. Um, the whole thing. I just don't know how to say me habéis, me habéis. It's H A B in E with the accent, and then I S E with the accent. So I, then it's habéis, no? Habéis. Me habéis, me habéis. The emphasis should be on the E, not on the I. 
Me abei. How do you do that though? It's like when you say mama. You don't yeah, say but mama. Okay, how you would say you mama. say it? <laughs> hey, I'm just telling you what that. Abeis. Abeis. Yeah, it's like, you know how they say to come, they say veni instead of venir. And the emphasis well, is on I the I. I know it in concept, but I can't <laughs> pronounce it. Okay, say, so if you said it without the accent, it would be abeis, right? Abeis. Because the emphasis abeis. is nowhere. Oh, you're right. So, so I'm then saying it's right. abeis. Abeis. That's, been, that's what I've been saying. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Just say it. Okay. <laughs> me, abe, me habéis golpeado azotando la cruel mano en el rostro, desnudo y casto como una flor donde amanece la primavera. Me habéis encarcelado aún más con vuestros ojos ira, iracundos, muriéndose de frío mi corazón bajo el torrente del odio. Habéis despreciado mi amor. Os reísteis, rey, oh God, os reísteis, sorry, rey, it's, reísteis, reísteis, and there's an I in there, reísteis, 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 I'm so sorry, how is this spelled, <laughs> it's like reís, then T-E-I-S, R-E-I-S-T-E-I-S, reísteis, reísteis, Days, <laughs> That's my that's my problem. Okay. Habéis despreciado mi amor, os reístes. Oops, whatever. De su pequeño regalo ruboroso, sin querer entender los laberintos de mi ternura. Ahora es la hora. This is the part that I translated. Mm -hmm. Ahora es la hora de mi turno, el turno del ofendido por años silencioso, a pesar de los gritos. Escucha, escucha. Mm. that's the easiest part of that to pronounce <laughs> <laughs> but yes that was el mozote long episode <laughs> yeah that was Ugh. long it's and heavy to yeah talk about these things but it's necessary <laughs> it is and the anniversary just happened which is why i was like i know i've already said part of this on a spooky tales but i haven't shared the other testimony and the newest newest information on the trial mm -hmm. and i just hope that it moves forward but it also is a good thing to listen to before your topic because nayibu kelebi is part of this now there's a lot of things that you can talk about about nayibu kele but I think I'm going to narrow it down to the state of exception. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But I mean, there's a bunch of bullshit, right? Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Beach or whatever. Yeah. He redeemed that stupid shit. Yeah. The judge thing. You already talked about that. But basically, you know, he's on his way already. He's known as the... He's... <laughs> as a dictator, basically. Oh, a hundred percent. Not basically. They it has like a name, the kind of like dictatorship that he is. I don't know. I don't want to call it his brand, but it's like. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I get what you're they saying. They call it. I think yeah. I, I, I wrote it down somewhere, or I saved the article, but it's like millennial authoritarianism or something like that is what they're calling Some it. Some shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, we are going to leave you with this uh, very depressing episode. Um, we're going to take a break to 
process no <laughs> no but we are gonna take a break um because we're gonna be hanging out um yeah we're gonna be together yeah. in irl <laughs> in irl so yeah we're gonna be taking a break until the new year so we'll be back with a new episode on the 5th of january and i know you said this was a depressing episode but more than that <laughs> it's more than that <laughs> oh i was like more than that what <laughs> it's a story of resistance and oh yes and yeah um how sharing our truths holds you know people accountable who try to get away yes. with shit even though they have yeah. not been held accountable but people know the atrocities now you know what i mean and we're gonna make it more known okay yeah. like we're gonna keep talking about this yes <laughs> every never every anniversary <laughs> no me neither um yeah so um yeah happy holidays hug your loved ones and fuck reagan <laughs> watch this fool <laughs> um, i'm sorry yeah. real quick. You remember uh-huh. hearing about that dumbass fucking podcast i was canceled but it, it was a reagan or some shit it was not canceled it was renamed oh it's out it's a sonoro podcast they just changed the name you're right they changed I the name but about it's still it. a thing i remember the hearing same the guy ad. who did um, the redhead guy Yes, he mm-hmm. did the Chalino Sanchez podcast. Mm-hmm. Him and another journalist, Patti something. They did. It's still out. It's just not called Hijos de Reagan. What kind of shit is that? I'm, that is offensive. Uh, uh, offense. <laughs> I, I take offense. <laughs> I am offended. Yes. Happy holidays anyway. to everyone except the Reagan family. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And may, may um, Ronald burn. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Um, yeah, and we'll catch everyone back in the new year. So, um, take care. Yes. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>